Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Best Ever You Network, celebrating our third year on Blog Talk Radio and iTunes. Thank you for helping us become a number one rated live show with over one million global listeners. Our team is on a mission to help you discover your authentic best self and bring it to the world. And now, here's our show. Good afternoon, everybody. How are you today? I'm Elizabeth Hamilton Garino. And I'm your host of the Best Ever You Show. And our uh, our intro there is actually a little bit outdated. We're at t- over 2 million downloads now, and we've been on the air for almost four years. So i going to update that a little bit. But I, I just want to start out by thanking you all so much for all of your support in sharing our show. I know when we started this show, it, I didn't know what was going to happen. It was like going on air live and talking to vapor. <laughs> you know, I had no idea who I was going to talk to who I was going to reach or what was going to happen. And I think so many things start out like that. And so today my message is to encourage you to do things that you have fear doing. Um, I, I know I always kind of say something at the top of every show, but today is about pushing through fear, using the courage that you've got within you, even if it's something where the brakes are on, your heels are in front of you, and you're like, oh, no, I don't want to do that. Go for it. Um, be your best. Do things that scare you because when you come out on the flip side of doing something that scares you often, you amaze yourself. So that's my best ever used spiel for today, and we're hashtagging baseball over the place with this show. I'm so excited. Anytime I get a chance to talk about baseball, I've loved baseball since I was a kid. And um, I ran into the the founder and the president of the Head First Honor Roll Camps in Long Island this past summer. And take a breath because <laughs> it's cool that he's here, and it, it's a really big deal to me. Um, so you can kind of hear it in my voice. But his name is Brendan Sullivan, and um, I can remember even meeting him. I had that kind of like, oh, I can't breathe kind of thing because it's so cool. Um, I love it when people do things that propel kids into spots where they may not have gone without an adult's help. I love it when people mentor kids and help kids and do all the things that make us all so awesome. And he directs Head First Honor Rolls, Head First Honor Roll Camps. Um, his website is headfirsthonorroll.com. And he is, like I said, the president and founder. And not only did he do that, but he went to Stanford, which is pretty cool. He graduated in 1996. Um, he's pitched in the College World Series. Um, he's been to three NCAA tournaments, and right now he's like, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, it's not about me. It's about the kids, and I, and I know that. But, you know, but he also played professional baseball with the Padres and the Rangers. Pretty cool stuff here. And so what I thought was we could bring him on today, and for all the kids and the parents and the grandparents and friends and family and everybody listening who's got maybe that student athlete out there, um, maybe he could shed some insight into what all it takes to do all these cool things that you're dreaming of doing. Does that make sense, Brendan? How are you? Hi. I'm, I'm doing great. It's a pleasure to be on, Elizabeth. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for being here. Um, yeah, I, the, basically the show is yours, and you just get to talk the whole time, and we're all going to listen. How does that sound? <laughs> a lot of pre- that's, that's 57 minutes of pressure. <laughs> exactly. Um, I guess, I, I, guess I, I would love to know um, how you, as a kid, got involved with baseball to start. Absolutely. First of all, thank you for having me, of course. It's it's great to be on the show. It's an incredible volume of, of listeners and folks that you've impacted with this show, and I've 
been watching from afar since we met in Long Island a few months ago, and I remember meeting you too, and we had a nice chat, and I'm excited to, to talk a little bit today. So baseball, I, you know, I think like so many uh, young kids you know, learning to love sports, it, it all came through my parents originally. Interestingly, neither my mom nor my dad are baseball fans per se, but my dad always used to take us to games. He figured out pretty quickly that we loved, my little brother and I, and then my little sister behind us loved going to Orioles games. We, we grew up in D.C., Washington, D.C., which is where I still live and where our business at first is based. Um, and there were no nationals in those years. So we went to Orioles games up in Baltimore. And that was really where, um, where I learned to sort of love the sport and the combination of going to the games and seeing the games under the lights and the players and all the excitement of a of what a young young ball player, a young aspiring ball player would see at a major league stadium, matched that with that that sport became the way that I connected with my dad and connected with my brother and then with my sister too. It really was it was sort of a love at first sight, you could say, uh, as really as young as I can remember. It's one of the first sporting events I ever think I went to, and from the very first time I stepped into Memorial Stadium, I was hooked. That's really cool. Did you, um, you know, we see a lot of parents at youth sports events and things like that, and they, like, think their kids going to MLB right off the bat. You know, they're easy, you know, yay, you know, kind of thing. And I'm wondering, um, were your parents like that? Did, were they like that? Brendan Sullivan, man, he's going to be in the MLB one day. We just know it. Um, you know, I think the total opposite. I, I think that they <laughs> – um, you know, we grew up you know, in D.C., certainly not a baseball hotbed, not, not that they necessarily would have known what that was at the time. And, and you know, my folks were and continue to be so incredibly supportive of the things that at that time that I wanted to do and the passions that I wanted to pursue. Um, I don't remember one time in my youth career feeling that there was athletic pressure put on me by my mom or my dad. And, and, and part of that, I'm sure, was some blissful ignorance, but certainly I don't ever, I, I never felt like I was, I never saw my brother or my sister who were athletes sort of behind me. I was the oldest of, of our three feel like there were sort of athletic dreams of our parents that we were sort of living out in some way. And I don't, I, I think it was still every step along the way, high school and becoming a varsity player as a, as a freshman, for example, or getting invited to, go on the spring trip when I was young and younger than most kids and then getting recruited to Stanford and then eventually getting drafted. These were all pinch me moments for all of us. And certainly my, my mom and dad in particular, I think they still probably look back and say, how the hell did you, how the hell did that happen? Because it wasn't anything that they sort of set out to, uh, to, to do. Um, and so I, I think that that's, you know, there's so many wonderfully supportive athletic parents out there, and I, I am a parent of a very, very young little girl who has not played sports other than throwing a ball about six inches to me. She's not two years old yet, so I, I haven't sort of gone on that part of the the journey yet. Um, I see it from the, the perspective of the position I have running these camps and running camps for ball players and, and student athletes of all different ages got to be so hard it's got to be so hard especially when there's a love of the game and of course a love of the child um and that that challenge i feel like my parents they aced that and they they did a really good job at at allowing me to love it and love and support me and support my coaches but without doing it in a way that 
interfered with the experience for me or made it more their experience than mine. Yeah, when we, when we were listening to you um, talk at Head First, one of the I I, I love the speech that you gave about um, grades and you know all the th- you know all, your story basically. And I was wondering if you could take a moment and share a little bit of that with us and how you arrived at founding Head First. Sure. Um, well, and I and for thank you for the compliment. I, I as a part of running this business that does a number of different things around the country, but the one that we're talking about and the reason you and I know each other, these honor roll showcase camps where we have high-performing student-athletes who play baseball or softball in different events arrive at us in this time in their career at an event where there's a lot of college coaches watching and there's the stakes are so darn high. Um, and so I now have the perspective of having done this for seven, almost 20 years, 17 years, and so, you know, I certainly didn't know the things the first year I did it or when I was playing myself that I sort of know or, or at least think I know now or have, have seen. Um, you know, what I, what I do know, of course, is that the, the myth that, of course, all young baseball players would love to think that if I'm good enough at baseball, the academics will just take care of themselves couldn't be further from the truth. And that's one of the things that we try to hammer home in our two days, knowing that it's probably a message that's been hammered home at home by mom and dad and others for years and years and years. And we're just taking one little swing at the nail when we, when we have these, these boys with us for a couple of days the, the, the idea for honor roll camp came about years ago. And the, the, the recruiting landscape has changed so much in every sport and in particular in baseball, the one that I'm the most familiar with. Um, when I was being recruited to Stanford, there were, there were, weren't camps like this. There weren't opportunities where you could say, okay, I know that these coaches from these schools are going to be in this place and I can sign up as an individual and I can go. And I, if I play well, I, I might have an opportunity to play at those schools. And the process was much less efficient for both the student athletes who we're looking at all different schools and all different places. Um, and also, of course, the coaches who are, who, who in particular from these academic schools, sure, they could walk down the block or go to a tournament somewhere in their area and see lots of good baseball players, but there wasn't anything that was being done to filter those student athletes on an academic basis. And so the idea for honor roll camp was really created 17 years ago by gathering our very first camp was nine college coaches um, and about 60 or 65 ball players in a little town called Fort Pierce, Florida in 1999. We leveraged some relationships and made a bunch of phone calls and somehow got nine college coaches to, um, to show up. And somehow it probably was even harder to get 65 student athletes to show up for something that had never existed before. And we ran the first camp and it, and the feedback from both sides was, wow, we've never had an opportunity to do this in an efficient environment where for the student athletes, number one, their academic performance was weighed really heavily because you sort of had to be a good student for it to make sense for them to come to this camp. And then on the coach's side, they said, wow, I can go to one place and know that virtually every kid that I'm seeing at least is in the ballpark for my admissions department. And so that's really where this started from. And of course, we hear all the time, the grades are so important and the grades are so important, but we see this in such a tangible way multiple times a year where the hard work that these student-athletes have put in the classroom 
it's really more important than the work that they're doing in the weight room and the baseball field and, and elsewhere. But the ones that are successful ultimately match those things all together. And then you have to perform when the light's shining on you. And that's one of the things that we try to, to do is create an environment where, yes, it's so pressurized and the stakes are so high and I'm playing in front of 80 college coaches in some cases for the very first time, what can we do as head first as our team to try to make it so that that young man or that young woman who's in that experience has this, has the sort of skills and the know-how and the courage to perform at their very best. And that's really what our organization is about and what our program is about. Now, can I back you up even a little bit further than that too and um, go to Rancho Cucamonga, I think it Rancho Cucamonga. I Rancho, Rancho Cucamonga, you may. Did I say it right? Can, Rancho can Cucamonga, the Rancho Cucamonga Quakes. Exactly. Can you tell everybody what happened to you there and how you went from there to doing what you're doing now? And so Rancho Cucamonga, meaning where I played single-A baseball. Yeah. Um, so in so my professional career sort of took a took a turn in in Rancho in that one year I had in Rancho Cucamonga. I was I was a minor league sidearm pitcher and I had been drafted in the late rounds by the San Diego Padres after a career at Stanford and and thrown into the minor leagues, the, the bus leagues, as they're called. And I'd had a year in Idaho Falls, Idaho, which was pretty good. And, yeah, I was a nice guy and good in the clubhouse, and I signed all the autographs they asked me to, and I went to the community events and ran the clinics, and it was generally a good guy to have around the clubhouse. And I got a few people out and certainly enough people out that year for them to invite me back the next year. So I went to spring training year number two, and they assigned me to a little town called Clinton, Iowa, on the huh? banks of the Clinton, Mississippi Iowa. River. Clinton, yeah. Iowa. 30,000 people. Um, it was a, a, a town that was legendary in those times in the minor leagues because it was about 30 degrees in April, about 105 in August. There's a byproducts plant in town that you could, the entire town, no matter where you were, ballpark, at home, eaten somewhere, there was this smell of Clinton, Iowa, that if I smelled it today, I would remember the year of 1996 very well, I'm sure. Um, and then, so I had another decent year, um, good enough to give, come back to spring training. Um, but I, uh, it was sort of make, you know, make or break time for a sidearm reliever who was thrown in the low to mid eighties and didn't have a first round arm and, and probably didn't have a first round head either, but had been a good sort of organizational player as they call it. And so I made the, I, I went to spring training that for the second time and barely made the roster for this high A team in Rancho Cucamonga, and I was the last pitcher on the staff. I was the mop-up man and just had one of those years. had a year that everything, all the sort of work that I'd done and all the luck that I'd sort of probably earned over the years all came together at once, and my career sort of went on a, at a fork there, and I went from almost being out of baseball to all of a sudden sort of rocketing my way through that year, made it from A ball, called up to double A in the middle of the year, was the closer there, our team won the championship, and then the next spring training, so sort of one year removed from almost being out of baseball, I was sent to AAA, and there I was, call away from the big leagues and playing against big leaguers and, and my own clubhouse with big leaguers, and and so this was my shot. Now, meanwhile, I was right around this time, I was starting this business in the off season. Of course, I was 
convinced that this business was something I would just sort of push aside as soon as I got called up and had my 15-year major league career, but that never happened. I got released after a couple years of a ball in AAA, um, but it had this incredible experience, um, incredible experience that um, I think has allowed me to some degree to start the business. It's uh, it certainly taught me as many lessons as any time in my life in terms of just being thrown in a clubhouse with 25 people from literally all over the world, um, where in most cases the only thing you have in common is the love of baseball or the desire to strike somebody out or or, or not strike out. And uh, and meanwhile, it was sort of the, the place that I was able to grow and develop as a, as a person and then start this business in the off-season, which is what I was doing as I was at home from September to, to February. And about how old were you? When um, your this baseball, you know, the baseball career um, that you're talking about was over. Like how yes, was so 30, so 35? I I I had played all this. Gosh, I'd played all this baseball. It felt like I'd played forever. I'd I'd played in you know every All Star team known to man, and I'd gone to Stanford and played in the College World Series, and I've uh, been gotten drafted. Played in Cape Cod League for the summer, which was a dream of mine. Gotten drafted. Played five or six years in the minor leagues all over the country and other countries, and then it all came to an end. And it came to an end in one sort of moment at the end of my my final spring training, and I was 26 years old. And um, gosh, to, to to a 17 or 18 year old, that might seem like gosh, he's old. Um, and now, of course, we know looking back, there's, it's just a blip in time, those years. And so <laughs> I was, what's that? I said it sounds really young to me. <laughs> yeah, really yeah well, believe me, it sounds, it sounds young to me. It sounds young to me, too. Um, and at that moment, this baseball dream that I'd been hanging on to for dear life and had given me the most incredible ride over, it was over, gone, now, can I always say I played pro baseball to, when I get introduced sometimes? Did I play pro baseball? Do I have that sort of legitimacy, especially in the field that I'm in where I get to wear a baseball uniform a few times a year and, and run these camps? Yeah, absolutely. But it was over. It was over. There wasn't a dollar that had been saved. In fact, it was negative dollars saved. to get paid very, very little to, to play in the minor leagues at that time, even in AAA. The, the the pay for someone in my situation was was minuscule compared to what anyone would imagine for for baseball being played at that level. What I was left with, of course, was a Stanford degree, and and that Stanford degree is ultimately the you know, the most powerful. That network that what I learned in that place was was something that was so important. And so it's one of the messages that we try to hammer home at our camps is that yes, guys, you're you're in a baseball uniform. Um, you're making an critical life decision, amazingly enough, in a dirty baseball uniform. But this is a decision that you have to think about school first. And, and no matter no matter how far your baseball career goes, you're going to need to do something on the other side of of this baseball career. And what you do now is going to set the the stage for that. Why do grades matter so much in baseball? Like being recruited um, well, and things like that. Why do why? Because baseball um, seems like it's different, and that grades matter because of the scholarships and things like that. Is that accurate? It is. It is, and I think that there. Number one, there's. I, I always feel no matter where you are, whether you're in Washington D.C. or you're in Maine or you're California, Texas, 
there's all, there are always better players. There are always better players than you somewhere. Um, and as you work your way up the baseball chain, you find that sort of all, you know, you get to a level and every, and everybody is at or above your level or at or close to your level. And so in this process where, where it's the, the lines are so narrow between getting an opportunity or getting a look, um, the, the academic, the academic piece is just absolutely critical. And the, the level of talent that you have to have to sort of wash out the academics means that you're not, you, you're not really considering schools that are going to help you very much anyway. I mean, certainly there are guys that have an arm that they're going to get drafted and never go to school and pitch in the major leagues for 10 years. That's like landing on the moon. And most of these guys that we see, if they're doing it right, are good, good baseball players and they're serious about the sport, but they also have this academic package. And if they can use that academic, um, use the baseball package, sorry, the baseball piece to pull themselves up a notch in the, in the sort of college admissions game, gosh, now we're really using that, all that work we've done on the baseball field, the passion we have for the game to sort of catapult my life forward in a good way. And that's not to take away from the, the incredible years of being a college athlete, which was worth talking about and we can talk about because those are such special years, but the years beyond are going to be dictated by where you spend those years. And so in baseball in particular, where there's less scholarship money, there's less money period like there is in football or basketball. Um, it's just that the, the, the path to these, these college baseball programs is kick butt in the classroom kick button in the classroom and you just open more doors for yourself so that when, to use the example of our program, when you stand on the mound in an environment or you field ground balls in front of 80 college coaches, are they willing to give you that extra look because your GPA is at a certain level or your test scores for a certain level? And that's just the reality of this process is it's the academics dominate and in, in almost every school in the country and certainly the schools that the young men and women that come through our programs are looking to go to. Um, it's just, I, I, I say to guys all the time or, or ladies all the time, if you could have a choice of an extra point on your GPA or an extra couple miles per hour on your fastball, it's a no-brainer. I mean, the GPA is just so much more valuable, even in, in the recruiting process. So you got to Stanford. I mean, that's pretty amazing. I mean, the acceptance rate at Stanford or Duke, you know, all, you know, it seems like when you hear, where do you want to play baseball? Stanford and Duke, you know, it's, it's kids always say that. And you got to go there. And so when you landed there, were you like, okay, I'm the starting pitcher, I'm awesome, you know, I'm this and that, you know, how did that go for you being at Stanford? What was that like? You you land there and it's like, I'm at Stanford, now what? what what's What's that like? Just even it, well, it, it was at the, same, at the same the, uh, the, uh, I, looking back, I, th- there's so many factors that, that went into my having the opportunity to, to go to Stanford as a student and to play baseball at Stanford. And it, I, I think one of the, one of the many, many gifts of the job that I have that for me as a human is that I, it's impossible to take that for granted for me because every year I meet hundreds and hundreds of student athletes that dream of that very thing. And, um, and it reminds me of how fortunate I was and how, you know, yes, how hard I worked and how lucky I was to have supportive parents and great coaches and also how much sort of good fortune and luck sort of came into that decision as well. And, and it's, I constantly get perspective on that. It was, it was an incredible opportunity. 
um, one I miss to some degree and, and one I, I think about often, especially in my, my line of work. You know, so there I am. I dream of going to Stanford starting at about age 12. And then I get to Stanford and I'm skipping through a lot of a lot of running and sit-ups and throwing and great <laughs> grades say. and studying for tests, right? I'm, I'm skipping through a but pretty those important – Those SATs, <laughs> all of those things, you know, mom and dad being on my – but about studying every every night, um, but then I so I arrive at Stanford as a Division One athlete, and I remember the, that moment very very well because I arrived and there was this feeling of you've done it, you've gotten, you've sort of reached that goal, you've checked that box, but then so quickly that transitions into the reality of of your situation, and at a place like that for me, and it really is I think at any place that someone's going to go play college athletics, division one, two, or three, and whether it's Stanford or McAllister or Swarthmore or anywhere in between, you're playing college athletics. You've now moved to the next level. And for me, there were these crazy sort of reality checks that, Oh my gosh, the battle that you have ahead of you is just, it feels like a, an incredible 90 degree climb at all times because you're surrounded by incredible student athletes. In my case, virtually all of whom were more physically talented than I was, um, an incredibly competitive environment, a coach who's there to win games and, yeah, develop young people, but he's there to win games. He's there to win the national championship. And and then, of course, 3,000 miles away from home for the first time and with no sort of oversight on my time and my studying and everything else, it was uh, it, it was a rude awakening in a lot of ways. And I think that any any, college, any high school student that – doesn't prepare for that as not preparing for reality because it is going to be a tough adjustment. And for me, there were a number of those adjustments and I, you know, learned to roll with the punches. Do you, do you go from, so let's say you're, you know, you're at the top of everything in high school, you're the Gatorade circle of champions player of the year, you're this and that. When you get to Stanford, does everybody go, congratulations on being the Gatorade circle of champions player of the year, or do you <laughs> go all the way back down to the, um, you know, freshman level and climb back up because, you know, the, there's players that have been there for four years or two years. You know, what's that like to go in as a freshman? Do you pitch? Um, you, well, it, it, it's you have you've on, on this show, and I've listened and enjoyed it very much. One of my great buddies and, and college roommates, Mike Robbins, was a guest a little while ago, and, and Mike is a dear friend, and he and I, one of the many things we used to do, Together, we used to love sort of thumbing through the Stanford baseball program and looking at the bios of the people in the program. And it was just, I mean, it was like it was written in Hollywood. I mean, every yeah. captain of everything, president of everything, valedictorian, point guard, quarterback, led the wrestling team, you know, you name it. And, and we're faced with everybody has achieved at an incredibly high level. And so to answer your question, did anyone – care about my Gatorade Player of the Year award in Washington, D.C., it was the opposite. I think they probably made fun of me for that because it was so, you know, un- irrelevant to what was happening out there. And so pretty quickly you realize that, gosh, you go from the, literally the big man on campus to the, to the low man on the totem pole. But, of course, this is what makes – this is what allows an individual to grow so long as they're willing to sort of look at it as, okay, that was fun to be on the top of the heap. Now – I've got to work my way back up. And I think as I look back at my time at Stanford, you know, among the top two or three things that I learned there or refined there was just 
if you want to compete with, with the top of the heap, the amount of work that you have to put in and the number of times you're going to have to grit your teeth and grind through an incredibly difficult day or a conditioning test or study for an exam is, is too many to even begin to name. And, of course, looking back now with a little bit of perspective, being a professional and being a, being running a business and being a boss of, of young people and, and hiring young people uh, you know, fairly frequently, it's those characteristics that are the most valuable. And so it's so hard, I think, for student-athletes to – to realize that that pain that you're going through in the moment is going to, is going to be sort of bigger and better for you than just getting through that test or getting through that sprint or getting through that difficult game. But that's really where sort of my, I feel that my character was refined. It was of course started at home, but really refined there where there just wasn't any opportunity to slide. There wasn't any opportunity to take a day off. And to the question of, did I pitch? They allowed everybody to pitch in, inner squads. And we had a 17 man pitching staff. I was the last guy on it without any, there wasn't even a question. If you'd polled every guy on the team, who's the last pitcher on the staff that would have been 17 for 17 would have been Sully. Um, and was that tough at the time? Of course. I look back and I realized that being in that position, having to earn my way out of it was more important than any slider I threw or more important than any outing that I had in the years that followed. So the Stanford program was great in that everybody got to participate in the fall at even levels. And so there was an opportunity to pitch at least right when you got there. So I pitched in the fall like everybody else did. Pretty quickly became aware that I wasn't as physically talented as other guys. And in, in many cases, I was far, far behind them. And at times I wondered, what in the hell am I doing here? Why did they, why did they bring me here? Why did I go here? Um, and then once the season started, I was nowhere close to pitching. Um, and the 17 guys, we had probably seven or eight pitched regularly. So when there's seven or eight pitching regularly, and then another seven, eight, nine between you and the even the guys that pitch regularly, it feels like it's an awful long way away. So what did you do? It, it, you know, at that point where you're like, uh-oh, you know, I'm I'm 17 out of 17 here. Can you describe what you kind of mentally did to flip that around to go, okay, I'm going to have to work, you know, you know, I can put words in your mouth, but what, what did you do right at that? There had to be a moment where you're like, either give up or go for it. Did you have a yeah, moment well, like I think that, that or anything? I, well, I think there were a lot of, lot of moments. I mean, it, you know, I, I remember, you know, I don't remember one pivotal moment where I sat, you know, cross-legged in center field, sunken diamond and let <laughs> the experience wash over me. You know, you don't, when you're 17, 18, years old it was just go 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 and of course at, at my age now I'm more sort of I'm able to reflect a little more than I was at that point um but what I do it, it's in those moments what I believe and I believe it now and I don't know that I necessarily knew it then but is you sort of you, you go back to what have you been taught what it, what is in, at the core of your being who is what, what type of student athlete is Brennan Sullivan or whoever and for me, my sort of the places I immediately went to, mom and dad, not, not in terms of picking up the phone and calling them, but all right, how have I led my life? How have I been successful to this point? Fantastic coaches that I had who were not just great technical coaches for me, but taught me how to work and taught me how to grind every day and compete every day. And that is such an incredible gift that A, I had those coaches and B, 
my mom and dad knew enough to let me be coached by them because there were times when they kicked my butt and there are times when I'm sure a parental instinct would be, I'm going to, I don't want my kid yelled at, or I don't want my kid sitting on the bench here or getting yanked out of the game for doing something, but they just, they let that process happen. And that process was so critical. That that? That does not work as a parent. You pretty much got to just button, button the mouth. I, 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 well, I, I, I'm 17 Wait. months into that part of my life, and I, uh, yeah. and I, I can only imagine how hard it is. And as I, as I sort of, as I get older, and I watch this process, and watch young ball players and younger parents, or parents my age, um, go through this, I'm, I'm constantly thankful and reflective of how my mom and dad were. And so, you know, in those moments in freshman year at Stanford. It's, that's what you, I sort of you go back to what has gotten you there, and I think that I pretty quickly decided, well, you know, one choice is go home, right? I let's head back to the East Coast and do something else. And that did that thought go through my head a few times, of course, but not seriously. Um, and then the other thought is, well, what do I? The only way I know how to be successful is to put my nose down and get to work and to. Um, get close to the veteran players, watch how they went about things, figure out where my opportunity was going to be, and then be ready for it and be ready for it by, by by just absolutely working my tail off. I remember, I remember one talking about moments. I remember one moment we had all this ridiculously hard conditioning that the pitching staff would do, and Coach Dean Stotts, who was the pitching coach during my three years there who just retired a, a year ago or so and after a fantastic career at Stanford really one of the handful of people who've had the most impact on me in my life um, outside my family he was the pitching coach at this time and God, he, he grinded us hard and the conditioning was hard and it was very clear I was just sort of middle to back of the pack whenever we did these we ran the stadium run the sprints to the two-mile race I just wasn't, I just, I was trying hard, but I just wasn't sort of athletically able to do that. And I made, I remember deciding, you know what, I'm sick of this. I'm sick of not being able to be in the top front of the pack. And, and I want to see if I can do that. Cause if I can do that, maybe I can get my butt on the field and actually pitch. And I remember going home my, my summer between my freshman and sophomore year. And I talked to somebody who of course knew about this and they suggested that I jump rope and I never really jumped rope before. And I, so I went for the entire summer a rig, very rigorous conditioning and jump rope program by myself. No coach, nobody to drive me or time me. It was just me. And I did this while I was playing summer ball. And uh, it changed me as an athlete. It really did. And I went back that next year, and all of a sudden I was the one leading the pack. And I was the one they were chasing. And that, to me, was sort of a pivotal moment for me in my career where I said, okay, this is something that I feel like I can control um, I, I put my mind to something and I got better at it. And now all of a sudden those same guys who are great guys and hard workers who I was chasing, now they're chasing me. And that to me was a moment for me that, that showed me what hard work, determination, grit can do for a person. And I think that's something that I, I, I tried to carry with me, you know, to this day. Powerful right there. And, you know, you mentioned um, Mike Robbins. I, I accidentally – interviewed your college roommate <laughs> it's funny because his I, I didn't know he was your college roommate when I you know I knew right as we were going into the interview but I didn't know it when I booked him as a guest I booked him as a fellow Hay House author 
with me yes. and I'm the rookie and he's the pro. And I was like, <laughs> oh, cool, I get to have Mike Robbins on my show kind of thing. And I and um, in his bio, I was like, oh, my God, he, he was at Stanford, too. And I emailed you, and I'm like, um, do you know him? <laughs> remember that? And you're like, oh, I was a man. I remember it well. Um, Small world. Uh, cool. Um, I love how when things work out like that. But can you do you want to talk about him a little bit? Because he's, he was amazing on our show, and my people love his books, and I love his books, and um, he's he's awesome. And was he always that inspirational back, back then? Um, short answer: Yes, he was. That's and and awesome. he, I would say if you if you had asked, well, first of all, it would have been impossible to sort of predict the the exact success that he's had, and the fact that he's a speaker around the world and written these books and. And I've had him come speak to our our organization before, and, and look forward to doing that again. I think you know, hard to say. Mike Robbins at twenty, you could say he's going to be doing this twenty years from now. If you'd asked our team, you know, who's most likely to be doing that, my guess is you probably would have gotten a pretty unanimous um, answer on him. And Mike, you know, Mike, here we were. I was this kid, right-handed sidearm pitcher from Washington D.C., and here's Mike, this lefty from Oakland, California. He was a year ahead of me in school, but pretty quickly we synced up uh, over really we were aligned over love of the game, work ethic, um, sense of humor. Um, and just we, we we connected pretty quickly and decided my sophomore year, so as he was a junior, my sophomore year to, to live together. And you know, Mike became just an incredibly close friend and and inspiration. I mean, he it's one of those guys when I mean, you hear him talk, it, it flashes me back to sitting in the bullpen with them or riding on the bus with them or sitting in our apartment at Stanford. And so, you know, he's, he has that sort of it factor. Number one, positive energy, like out of off, off the charts, positive energy and optimism. Um, number two, super emotionally intelligent and always was incredibly caring guy, even at 17, 18, 19, 20, where I would say in general, you know, division one or any, you know, college baseball players at that age, males, I'd say, you know, thoughtfulness and empathy is not necessarily the, really? you know, the categories that you'd sort of throw them in. And Mike was always that way. And, and as a result, um, he, he and I became very close. You know, I, I think of you know, times we were both in the bullpen together, and a lot of times it was one or, or the other of us was going to get the call that day and, and pitch. And that, that dynamic in, in high-level baseball, both college and pro, can be dicey because if they call Mike, that means they're not calling me and vice versa. And sometimes I saw those relationships getting difficult because people cared about themselves more than they cared about their teammates. And, and I, I never one time in the years I've played with Mike or knew Mike, did I ever think that he wanted anything other than solely to do the absolute best at all times, even if that meant his innings or his opportunity to save a game. And, you know, he's translated that into what he does for a living and, and, and what he really does for a living. He writes and he speaks, but he inspires. And, and that, you know, he inspires me when I listen to him. And I know that I, I speak for our, all of our teammates. I and mean, we're very proud of what he does and, and how he does it. And, and I think it's uh, very true to form of the type of human that he was when I met him. And, of course, that's a tribute to his folks and his family who were so impactful in his own life. Yeah, he fascinates me. Um, as do you. You both fascinate me as I've come to know you. And and um, I I I, um, I emailed him and I'm like, is there any way on super short notice you could, you know, kick off our, you know, our 
radio show um, for the season. And he's like, yeah. <laughs> just, just, it really, Great. he's so, I mean, he's just the nicest um, guy, and I would I would agree with you, just so inspirational. And to to all ages as well, I, you know, you were talking about how kids 17 or 18 might not be inclined to, to do this or that, and um, one of those things might, that they might not be inclined to is pick up you know, necessarily a, a self-improvement book. And um, those books are written, I think. He's written books that they actually could. I think it, kids can pick up his books and read them. So Mike-Robbins.com for anybody listening. <laughs> go, go get his book because he's, he's really inspirational and very um, he's very honest in his writing as well. He doesn't hold back. He, I'll tell you, he, ne- he, never, he never has. He never has, and that's one of the things I think everybody, certainly I respected about him and still respect about him. And I think you're right on about the age factor there. There's a lot of 15-, 16-, 17-year-old boys in particular, but really high school students or student athletes that wouldn't want to be caught dead with a self you know call it a self improvement book when he came to talk to when he came to talk to our our uh, part of our organization a while ago he talked to in many young kids it, it was a range of par- of kids from call it 8 or 9 up to 18 and their parents and he knocked it out of the park i mean he knocked it out of the park because he is so good at connecting with um folks of all different age and experience and background and it's really cool i mean it, just to think about i think about it all the time because folks I meet folks throughout through baseball, and they sort of put the Stanford thing together and talk about him and just the amount of content and, and really important content that he's been able to create and what he's been able to do really with a passion for helping people, which is what Mike always was about when I knew him. Um, it's just awesome. Really, really cool. Yeah, it is. Um, can we go back to your honor roll camps for a little bit here? Of course. And just talk about uh, and I appreciate you sharing so much of your personal history too. I think that really matters to people listening um because they can connect with you on so many levels. Um and and it gives direction too. Somebody might be thinking oh I'm lost or in that same spot. They might be a D1 um or D2 or D3 player going, "Oh, this is really hard and hear your story." Um but for for your camps, what what are they exactly? I know cuz you know we've been there, but yeah. um for benefit of somebody listening, What's an what's a head first honor roll camp? Sure. Um thank you for asking. So so I I like to look at this through through a couple different lenses. On uh, on the on the very sort of rational side of things, our head first honor roll camps are two-day recruiting events that are across the country for high school baseball or high school softball players who are high performers in the classroom and on the baseball or softball field. That and these events connect those players with college coaches from some of the best schools in the country. And we operate these two-day events where ball players come from all over the country. In some cases, the world. I think in 2015, we had ball players from 42 states, six foreign countries. The farthest traveler was someone traveled from Singapore to Jupiter, Florida. Assume Singapore to Sacramento for this two-day event. Um, And the idea is we create an efficient, effective marketplace where high-performing student-athletes can connect with coaches from those type of colleges and universities and have an opportunity not only to play in front of them but 
connect with them as coaches, connect with them as people, introduce themselves, and do so in a, in, a, in a thoughtful way. And so we're sort of the, ma- the middleman sort of matchmaking between these programs. And over the years, having been fortunate enough to do this now for 17 years and develop great relationships with not only some of these college coaches who are now close friends and great partners in this with us, um, but also families and or schools that send us players and have sent us players over the last you know almost two decades. Um, you know we're creating an atmosphere where that high performing student athlete can really shine and can really shine not only because of what they can do on the field, but also what they can do in the classroom and and, and eventually in an admissions packet or office. So that's sort of the tactical rational for us taking a step backwards. It all starts with. I mean, we're, we're about inspiring the personal best in young people. And in the honor roll camp, it's how can we create an environment that's already so pressurized because of the stakes. Um, young people who meeting us in some cases for the first time can come in this pressurized environment and be inspired and be given the courage and be supported to perform at their absolute best when the stakes are incredibly high. And that is the part of it that drives us and drives me. And when we think about how to design design the program and tweak the program, it's not about how can we move the schedule by one minute so this coach gets to see this player. It's about how do we how do we design this so that the player coming where all of this opportunity is in front of them in two days, how can we support them in this part of the journey? And it's gosh, it's a heck of a lot of fun and we feel incredibly fortunate to be able to do this in different parts of the country and in a couple different sports. We run seven baseball events annually, two in Sacramento, California, four on Long Island, and then one in Jupiter, Florida, just outside of West Palm Beach. And uh, softball is a a newer sport for us. 2016 will be our third year of softball, and we'll be running an event out west. We'll be running an event in Long Island and and probably one back here in Washington, D.C., where we've run one the last couple of years. So that's a snapshot of headfirst honor roll camps. And define high-performing student. Do you, do you, um, is there a minimum requirement for a GPA or an SAT score um, that you need to participate, or can anybody, or is it recommended? Because uh, I know the um, schools that are there. Of are, course, are, it's a, yeah, it's a good question. Um, it's, uh, so there, the, interestingly, the NCA rules prohibit us having a set minimum for anything. So we can't say you have to have a minimum 2.8 or a minimum 1,400 on the SATs. Um, that, based on the way our camp is set up, actually creates a, uh, is a violation for coaches who are working with us at the camp. So by the nature of the types of school that we invite, and so on the very, very top end, we have the Harvard, MIT, Stanford, UVAs, I mean, literally the Amherst, Williams, the best schools in the, in the world. But they're not all that level. All of them have a focus on academic kids. Um, mo- almost all of them are either Division One or Division Three. Um, and for us, a high-performing student athlete is not necessarily a 4.2 with a 2200 in the SAT or a 35 in the ACT. There are we meet plenty of them. And of course, I'm always impressed when I see the grades that come across our <laughs> registration system. It's incredible. <laughs> I mean, I say thank God I wasn't competing with these guys to get into Stanford. My story would be a little bit different. Um, So we certainly see a lot of those elite, elite students. But 
but it's 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 a wider range, and we have schools that um, that are very very good schools, but might not be the same brand names: McAllister, Allegheny, Muhlenberg, Emory, um, Catholic University, just just to name a few. A lot of the Patriot League schools, the Ivy League schools, the NESCAC schools. At our Long Island event, we'll probably have between 80 and 90 schools represented and a total of maybe 120 or 130 individual coaches. And they really run the gamut. On the very upper end of both the academic and baseball, you have Stanford, Vanderbilt, UVA, Duke. They're playing that are some of the hardest schools to get into in the world and are also playing top Division One baseball, competing with, or in the case of UVA and Vandy, winning the national championship every year. And But there's a range. There's a range baseball-wise, and there's a range academically. And our, our feeling is, is that for kids that are working hard in the classroom and take academics seriously and love to play baseball and have a little bit of ability or willing to sort of grow and get better – there's a great opportunity in our events. We we have a lot of conversations every year with families to try to evaluate, hey, is this the right program for my ball player? Um, and one of the things that we do is sort of an important sort of core value for us is making sure that we are we only are bringing folks to this camp that we feel can get something out of it. And it doesn't do us any good or, or anybody any good to have a ball player whose grades are so low that they just aren't recruitable by any coach there, that would be a conversation that we would have to say, you know what, we'd certainly love to see you, but this is probably not an event that your your son is or you're going to get recruited at. So we use high-performing as sort of a broad strokes. Um, you know, to me it's more about, you know, is this someone who's demonstrated a willingness to really get after it in the classroom and work hard? And, you know, as we know, you don't have to have a 4-0 and a 2200 on the SATs, and you also don't have to throw 89 miles an hour and run a 6360 to be a college baseball player. And I think that's one of the really cool things about our program is that everybody who arrives knows Duke, everybody who arrives knows Princeton, everyone who arrives knows MIT, but there's this huge group of schools and coaches that are offering really incredible experiences, incredible experiences as a student athlete, incredible experiences as a student and one of the things we love to do is create an environment where of course there's going to be a line to talk to the Duke coach we get that but there's also going to be a line to talk to the Grinnell coach in Iowa because it's one of the best D3 schools in the country and that coach gets up and talks to our camp and about his program and his school and you see eyes starting to widen a little bit and and you know one of the things we're trying to do is, is get young people to open up their minds a little bit to different possible ways to chase their college athletic dreams. I was fascinated by how many coaches were there and how absolutely checked in they were to everything going on. I've never seen so many people pay so much attention to children and players and parents and people. And I mean... That event, everybody was so engaged. Nobody was standing oh, there like, oh, that. yeah, you know. I was fascinated by how much all of the coaches paid attention to all of the kids, regardless of who they came there to really see or whatever was going on in the background that nobody, you know, you know what I mean? There might be a favorite, but yeah. everybody got equal um, time, and I was fascinated by that. I, I was I mean, I just kind of sat back and, and watched the whole event a little bit. And is that 
is that something that you? I mean, it just seems like that's fascinating to me because <laughs> it could be. Uh, all yeah, well, right I, I appreciate you asking that. I, I do, and I think, as you can imagine, that's not always the case in in these type yeah. of, you know, in these type of environments. And I think there's there's to me there's a couple factors. First of all, there's an environment that's created by every person that's at one of our events, whether it be me or my head first staff or our great group of college coaches or the ball players themselves, their families, and the the buy-in that we, over the years, it's taken us a while to develop relationships with these guys and so that the, these college coaches who, again, as I mentioned, many, many of whom are, are now close friends of ours. I mean, we, we spend, we do seven camps, so that's, we, we basically, let's call it a half of a month every year with these guys, which is more than I spend probably with my best friends in the world. Um, we spend a lot of time together, and we, over the years, I think there's a trust that's, that's built up between us and them, and we trust them to, to, to do their job and represent their school and represent our program in incredible ways, and they trust that we're going to bust our butts to create, A, a really efficient environment for them to, to do their main job, which is recruit, and bust our butt all year to canvas the United States and Singapore and everywhere else to bring them in one place, the best student-athletes playing baseball or softball in the country. And I think that that trust sort of delivers engagement. And, and they don't see us lose a step. They certainly don't see the high school ball players lose a step. And they, they do the same thing themselves, and they're locked in. And their job is difficult. They're, they're in many cases seeing 125 or 200 ball players over the course of a couple of days and needing to keep – all of this information straight. I, I admire greatly the work that they do and the fact that they're able to sort of process all these things at the same time, conversations, pitches, swings, um, all of that stuff. And, and then the other piece, of course, is that these guys, not only are they, are they great baseball coaches, but they're, they're in these jobs because they're great evaluators of talent. And they know that locking in in events like this is what's going to really get that extra look going to get that extra layer of evaluation on a player it might be end of a end of a long day when some of the coaches are tuned out a little bit the coach that's really focused on those players right in front of them might get a little edge and these are competitive guys and so i think it's a combination of a sort of a cultural thing over the years that we've built up and the fact that these guys are pros they are pros at evaluating high school ball players and it's important our, our program would, would not be what it is if the coaches just showed up and stood around in uniform, it just would, it would be a totally different experience for everybody. And so we work very hard to make sure that that's not the case. And we are incredibly yeah. grateful that the coaches who come and, and, and in particular, the coaches who like anything, there, there's, there's a group of coaches, of course, based on age and experience who are viewed as the leaders and they set the tone. And when, when those coaches, um, when those coaches are locked in, the younger ones fall and make sure they follow because that's the way they want to be in that coach's uniform. They want to be the head coach at that program. And, and they're watching just like we encourage a young sophomore from Maine to, to look at the seniors who are being recruited and, and watch and see what characteristics they have. The younger assistant coaches at these programs are looking at their role models. And so like any environment, the leadership shown by those guys is just critical to the experience. Yeah, and the other thing we notice too is, you know, like all the way at the end of the second day when everybody's, you know, tired and whatever, you know, whatever's going on, everybody was still there. The coaches were 
still super engaged. We we were like, oh, everybody will have left. No. No. I mean, everybody the, was still there. Well, I, I I appreciate that, and I think you're 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 looking at in a in the right place to sort of see if there's going to be any sort of fall off in, in effort. I, I again, it goes to these cool. these coaches understand the, that the players in front of them have an opportunity, and this is not just about the Holy Cross coach recruiting for his program. The Holy Cross coach is being a part of a program that's given giving each of these kids a, a, an opportunity to play their butts off for two days and chase their dreams. And if that coach were to leave early or check out early, it impacts that. And they don't do it because they know how important it is to each individual ball player. Then the other, the other piece is I know I've never been a college coach, um, maybe someday, um, but I, I know if I were a recruiter, I would want to watch very, very carefully at who's still getting after it in innings five and six and seven and eight and nine of the last game of the day. Because those are the innings where it's gut check time and it's easy to mail it in. And it's actually probably the environment that's most like what it's like to play college baseball where you're playing or softball where you're having long days and it's a grind and you're tired. And the question is, what are you going to have in those last moments to give to your team or a program? And I always see the coaches that I know are the veterans and that are doing it at the highest level. Those are the guys that are super locked in for those last few hours for that reason. Yeah. Um, so we have we have. I, I agree with you too. By the way, I just I thought that was so cool. I it, I'm a former athlete myself, and I was like, I wonder if everybody's going to leave at the end of you know kind of thing. <laughs> like no, no. We also we here, also lock we also lock the gate we also lock the gates and lock the gate you know and, and steal their kids steal their car keys. Uh, <laughs> That's funny. Um, that'd be actually funny. Um, with two minutes left or so, and we can we can go over a little bit, but I want to make sure I respect your time and and so forth. Um, is there anything that I'm I'm missing completely that I, that we haven't talked about um, since you know I I certainly don't know everything about all this. Um, is there anything you wanted to mention or say that we didn't do, talk about? I think yeah, I think you've asked great questions. I think you've you your insight as a as a parent and as someone who's been an athlete, I think is, is right on. I, I think, I think you've covered a lot of it. I'm, I'm of course always curious. The piece that I, I can relate so careful, so closely with the players because I remember being them and I can relate closely with the college coaches because they're, we're coaches. And, um, although I've never done that job, I've sort of seen them do that job. It's the, it's the parent piece that I'm always amazed by and amazed when I see it done so well. And, and wonder a lot of times how, you know, how are these p- parents handling this pressure? And it's it's one of the things that we really focus on. I think we've learned to focus on that over the years because we meet so many great folks who travel so far and who this is such an important two days to. And we listen, and there's so much of our program that's been sort of tweaked over the years based on feedback from parents. I'm, I'm in awe every every time I run a camp. I'm in awe of the ball players and how they perform in this environment, and I'm certainly in awe of the parents and how they are handling it all. And in many cases, probably having a very cool exterior, well, while they're wound in knots inside as their precious <laughs> child is performing mound, at this like, level uh, on the mound. I, I can't yeah. imagine. I, I will say, Elizabeth, I, I honestly don't think I've ever been more nervous around sports 
and I and we've talked about how I played and and I've yeah. run events that have a lot of details and the stakes are high and um, there's plenty of opportunities for me to have been nervous. I don't think I've ever been more nervous in my life around sports than I remember like it was yesterday, sitting in the Superdome in Louisiana. My little brother was pitching for Duke, and he was two years younger than I was, and he somehow, he was sort of a similar story that I had, and Ted got a start against LSU, and he's pitching against LSU in the Superdome, and I'm down there to watch him, and I'm sitting between my mom and my dad, and just sort of helplessly watching and watching them sort of grip the seats and almost pull them out of the, you know, st- stadium. I don't, I don't, I don't know how you do it. I don't know how you do it in a, in a calm and, and sort of peaceful way. And I will remember that I'm sure until I have my first moment with my own daughter brother, and get that nervous. Your brother, your brother pitched for Duke. That's my cool. brother pit, my little brother pitched for Duke. He, he uh, Oh my God. He, he he uh, and my little sister was a lacrosse player at Duke as well, and it, it, and I th- I think in the you know back to maybe your first question, my mom and dad God love them they're they're beautiful people, neither one of them can take credit I don't think for the athletic genes that we have never neither one of them is a is really an athlete my mom golfs plays tennis a little bit my dad doesn't do much of anything athletically and. All three of us have played sports at a very high level in college, and, and Teddy and I both played pro ball for a little while. And my sister, who's probably the best of the three, didn't have an opportunity. There's no pro girls lacrosse team at this point. But I really think back to the way that they parented us around sports and the fact that there was we learned how to work, we learned how to um, we learned how to grind, we learned how to grit our teeth through those tough moments in the classroom and at homework and in the weight room and all that stuff. They got us around the great coaches, the best coaches they could find. They supported us and loved us every step of the way, but they let us have our journey, and they let it be about us. And as I look at my own parenting journey ahead, I I hope I can follow in those footsteps because I think that's probably going to be as hard as anything that happens on the field. Yeah, that's that's kind of really similar to to my approach to having – I have four – boys they're 14 16 18 and 20 and all of them play baseball and um and it's it's interesting when somebody's pitching or catching or doing whatever they're going to do whether it's one of them doesn't play baseball anymore and he's a meteorology student one you know one's a bodybuilder now you know they all do different things but i think the common theme that we have is faith trust and confidence in in them Great, Complete. and I, I will say I've only met, I've only had the privilege of meeting one of your boys. And I hope to meet the the others at some point. But you know, wherever his baseball journey takes him, I'll, I'll remember the way he shook my hand, and I'm going to remember the thank you note he wrote me afterwards. I'm going to remember the conversations that we had in the dugout, and you know, it's that stuff, of course, that will will last a lot longer than than the baseball will. And you're doing a great job. We're lucky to have well, crossed paths. Well, yeah, it's. Thank you very much, and thank you for saying such nice, nice things about him because he's um, he's an interesting he's an interesting guy, and it's all him. And you can't it, like um, you know you can't make somebody do something faster or better. You know it's all their effort. You can't you can steer, you can support, you can do all, all sorts of things, but it's not it's not for example, it's not my dream. You know, yeah. it's, it's yeah. his or whatever, 
and that so that's the one thing that we do. You know, it's not my dream to be a meteorologist; it's yours. So, what are you going to do? <laughs> you know, it's interesting. But, um, gosh, what a what a wonderful conversation with you. And I I guess I want to ask, can I ask you one more thing before we go? Of um, I, I want to ask you um, if somebody is out there listening and someone is saying, "No, you can't do that." Um, baseball? Are you kidding me? Or softball? Are you kidding me? Let's think about getting a real job or doing, you know, you don't want to do that. You know, the naysayer types of things and people who get around you who don't, aren't the ones that go, yeah, you can do it. Good job. You know, here, let me put all these things in your path to make you successful. What do you do when you get around somebody like that? Because I know kids face this all the time. And I heard you say, I think it was you. I don't know if it was um, you or Coach Tyner, but you talked about don't let anybody shame your work ethic out of you. Yeah, yeah. I, you? I, that 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 was me. It was it was something that was told to me by um, by one of the assistant coaches at Stanford, who's now the head coach at Cal, and he told me that at a moment where I didn't I, I didn't have the perspective to understand what it meant because I had been around these guys at Stanford who, to be honest, just everybody had this incredible work ethic there. Um, and, and then all of a sudden I was sort of was in, in the rest of life, and I was in pro baseball in particular where you have incredible hard workers and, and folks that don't want to get off the clubhouse couch and would rather uh, truly, instead of work with you or, or outwork you, they'd rather laugh at you for winning the sprints or laugh at you for doing all that jump roping and winning all the conditioning races all the time or laugh at you for, um, or make fun of you or be sarcastic about you, you know, reading a book instead of the sports page or heading to the library after practice instead of the bar. And that was, it was an incredibly powerful piece of advice for me that I, I don't, I don't, it's not an exaggeration to say, I think about it every day. And I think that, you know, to your original question of, you know, if, if people aren't telling you, no, you can't do that. You're not, you're not reaching high enough. And in my opinion, if you keep going and, and grinding and rely on what are to me the most important things, optimism, you know, belief in yourself, resiliency, you know, you're going to bounce once in a while. You're going to hit the ground. Are you going to bounce or are you going to break? Um, and then grit and determination, because if you want to, let's just talk about what we're talking about here. You want to play college sports you are going to have to be incredibly, incredibly determined. And I always feel the, the all of those things I just talked about, optimism, resiliency, grit, determination, they're all going to be not only que- um, questioned by folks who, who look at you strange when you say you want to do this or that, um, but you're going to get better by those people questioning you because it's going to happen your whole path and your whole journey. And it certainly happened during mine. And, um, you know, I think it's, something that we look at as a, as a great challenge in our program. And, and I look at it as a challenge in my life. And, you know, without those folks, sometimes there isn't the motivation to keep going and, and, and keep reaching. Awesome. Thank you so much for being here. Um, what, a, pl- what a cool conversation. My pleasure. I, it was so nice to meet you, and I'm so glad that you agreed to be here. And I thank you for, for um, just being here and, and um, doing all – Gosh, doing everything that you do for all these student athletes, I it must be amazing for you. Do you, do you keep track of it? Do you keep track of everybody? It's got to be so amazing for you to see all these athletes and what school they go to. You must have the biggest like 
flowchart ever somewhere. We, we, yeah, we, we, we do what we do our darn, our darn best, you know, awesome. but for us it's, it's, tra- it's keeping track of, it's keeping track of the relationships and the, and the people and it, it, it is an incredible gift to do what we do and in particular to see guys or ladies who've sort of been through the process and then come back in other parts of their life and are either working with us or checking in with us. Yeah. It's, we're very lucky. We're very lucky and we're, uh, we're excited to keep doing it in 2016. All right. Um, thank you, everybody, for listening, and thank you, Brendan, for being here. I don't have a fancy um, schmancy thing that closes us out. It's just us. <laughs> so um, our, our teleconference out and our radio show outro is what they call it is not functioning at this point. So we, we get to say goodbye this way, and just thank you for being on the show. And um, to everybody listening for the past hour and some, please go to Head First Honor Roll Camps. And um, – it's headfirsthonorroll.com, um, started in 1999. They are academic showcase events for high-achieving student-athletes, and they're for baseball and softball players um, to get in front of college coaches. And, and um, I was very impressed that Brendan was there and talking to all the parents and everything. Um, so very accessible. That's the one word that really comes to mind. People are waiting to meet you watching you play, doing all these things to help you be your very best. And I, and I, I think that's so neat because um, I, I think it gives awareness to, to where you might not get seen in parts of the country um, where baseball, you know, they might be like, do they play baseball in New England? <laughs> I don't know. It's, it's snowy there all the time. You know, and it gives you exposure to coaches that you might not otherwise meet. It gives you exposure to um the game and learning and working with the coaches and, and all sorts of things. Um, and I loved what you said, too, about the, the older um, kids, maybe the seniors and juniors, um, helping the younger kids because we definitely noticed that as well. So, But what a fabulous thing this is. And, again, it's headfirsthonorroll.com. And, Brendan, thank you so much for being here today. Um, appreciate it so much. And good luck to uh, – I hope you get a break, right? Do you get a break before it all kicks up again? <laughs> Yeah. Um, here and there, but we're ha- we're having too much fun to take too long of a break. So we'll, yeah, exactly. there'll be a little bit. But uh, thank you for all you do. It's been great chatting with you, and I've really enjoyed getting to know you. And keep up the great work with this show. A lot of fun. Thank, thank you. And um, just to kind of finally close out, you can sign up for the showcases right on their website. There's um, a baseball link and a softball link, and it lists all of the 2016 events. And um, can you can people start registering for that? Very soon. We're going to open up Very registration for 2016 in about a week or so. For uh, with, We'll announce our dates and be, be open and running. All right. Happy holidays, everybody, and we will um, see you in the new year with new shows. All right. Thank you again, Brendan. Take care, everybody, and thanks for listening. Thanks, Elizabeth. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.